I'm preaching a series of sermons on the life and teaching of Jesus, but I'm interrupting that series today to address um, something in response to the shooting that occurred in Louisville last Monday. Let me read this psalm and then I'll make a few introductory comments. Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Among the many interviews that I heard this past week, one was from uh, a doctor who was in charge of things at the University of Louisville where some of the people who were wounded in the shooting at the old National Bank were taken. And uh, he he said something like this, I'm just a doctor, I don't know what needs to be done, but something needs to be done. It may have been that comment that uh, caused me to rethink. I'd already begun to prepare for uh, preaching from the temptation of Christ this week, and Lord willing, I'll get back to that next Sunday. But it may have been that comment and the other comments of somebody needs to do something that uh, caused me to think of this passage of Scripture. Now, I anticipate a couple of objections to what I'm going to preach this morning. One objection comes from enemies, enemies of the Word of God. And that objection is capsulized in the comments that we have heard, we have had enough of thoughts and prayers, we need to do something. And so that, that comment reflects an attitude of God is not the answer to this situation. And so I'm going to say that God is the answer to this situation. And so I anticipate that people who are saying we just need to do something are going to say, well, it could not possibly be that. We've had enough of that kind of advice. But I hope to show you today from God's Word that that really is the, uh, the solution to the problem. The rejection of God and God's teaching is at the base of the problem that has resulted in such rampant violence in the United States. I anticipate a second objection, and this is friendly, a friendly objection from people like you who are listening to this sermon, and that is the, the solution that you propose is not big enough, it is not it's not wide enough in scope. We need something much larger than what you are proposing. And in thinking about that objection, 
I'm reminded of a story and a poem. The story uh, is one that uh, took place when I was living in West Virginia. And uh, when we moved into the parsonage of the First Baptist Church of Buffalo, West Virginia, everybody just calls it Buffalo Baptist, there was only a bathtub. And after we, no shower, only a bathtub. So after we had uh, lived there for a while, then they, uh, they installed a shower. But the pressure coming out of the shower was so weak that the shower was virtually useless. And so it was surmised that the problem was the size of pipe going from the city water supply into the parsonage was old, it was too small, it was clogged up. And so I and several men got out there with shovels and we dug up the water line. Probably took us two or three days. It was buried deep and we were working with shovels. And uh, so we replaced the water line, turned the water on, and the water pressure was still so poor that you couldn't take a shower. And then someone got the idea of just screwing off the shower head and removing the water reducer, screwing the shower head back on. And uh, that was what needed to happen. (laughs) Something so small, something that should have been obvious, something that should have been tried first. We just need to do something, and so let's dig up the yard. (laughs) And then the objection that I'm anticipating is it couldn't possibly be that simple, and I could not possibly have any part in repairing the foundations that, are, that have been destroyed in the United States of America. So here's the poem that, that I'm thinking of. I don't think I can quote it verbatim, but I can come fairly close. Say not, the struggle not availeth. So don't say there's no point in fighting. Say not, the struggle not availeth. The labor and the tears are vain. The enemy faints not nor faileth. As things have been, so they remain. So he's saying, don't say that. Don't say it does no good for you to to fight against evil, to stand up for what is right. And then the next stanza says, If hopes may be dupes, fears may be liars. So the poem is addressed to someone who has had his hopes dashed. And he says, when people filled me up with hopes, they were, it was not true. I, I was duped by the hopes. And the poet says, well, if hopes may be dupes, then fears may be liars. These fears that you have that uh, you could not possibly have any effect on the situation could be a lie. And then the, that stanza concludes with this couplet, Who knows, but in yon smoke concealed, your comrades even now are chasing the flyers and but for you possess the field. So he imagines a battlefield and there's the battle is concealed in smoke and here's this person saying, I'm getting out of here. This is no good. And the poet says, how do you know what's going on beyond that pale of smoke? The battle may be turned, 
by you going and joining your comrades in the fight. And then the poet says, sometimes when, when the waves of the sea are coming in, you can't tell that the tide is rising. It looks like here there's no inch of ground that is gained. But then far inland there are creeks and inlets that are rising as the tide comes in. And then he says, not, not by eastern windows only, when daylight comes, comes in the light. In front, the light climbs slow, how slowly. But westward look, the land is bright. When the sunlight comes, it looks like that sun is just coming up so, so slowly. But turn around and look in the west. And the west is already illumined with the brightness of that rising sun. It's a poem for people who are discouraged. It's a poem for people who are saying, my life doesn't matter. The kind of, the kind of simple solution that you propose is so simple that it will not work. We need to do something. But it surely cannot be that. But I hope that the Holy Spirit convinces you that it is indeed this. I've entitled this sermon, A Diagnosis of the Violence in America with a Biblical Prescription. So I'll first of all diagnose the problem and, uh, and then end up with this biblical prescription. In this chapter that I have just read, we have a description of wicked, senseless violence. You can see it there in verse 2. The wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So, of course, they didn't have uh, firearms in those days. And bow and arrow were uh, pretty much at the top of the food chain when it came to effective weapons. And here we have got someone who is senselessly, wickedly shooting at righteous people. And then the question is asked, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I think that the end of verse 1 and verse 2 and 3 are the, the sneer of a skeptic. They're saying to David, you have said that uh, God is a refuge for you, but look, the foundations are destroyed. What possibly can be done? What possibly can the righteous do? And that may be a question that some of you are asking as well. Jesus taught about the importance of a right foundation when he concludes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, anyone who does not hear these teachings of mine is like someone who built a house, but he never dug down deep and founded his house on the rock. And the winds arose and the waters came and they beat against that house and it fell because it never had a foundation. But in contrast to that, whoever builds their life upon my teaching is like someone who dug down deep and laid the foundation of his house upon a rock. And then when the, the winds and the waters and the storm came against that house, it stood because it was founded on the rock. If the foundations are eroded, then the building is going to collapse. We are being exhorted, do something. Enough of your thoughts and prayers. Flee as a bird to your mountain is the advice that this skeptic gave to David 
flee as a bird to your mountain. You say that you've got a mountain. Well, just go ahead and run off there. That's the only thing that you can do. Beating a drum will not set the crumbling building straight. The foundations must be repaired. And I will confess that you and I by ourselves cannot repair these foundations, but you and I can embrace the principles of foundational building in our own lives and hope that our little, our little spark will add to someone else's little spark and that our sparks will join with other sparks and that there might be a great difference that is made. So I want to, first of all, give a diagnosis of the violence in America. What are the foundations, and how have these foundations been abandoned? In the process of preparing this sermon, I I compiled a lot of notes, but I have tried to reduce them down to these four main heads because I want you to remember them. The first foundation is that there is a God, and he has revealed himself in the Bible. The second one is humans are created in the image of God. So we start with God, then we move to the fact that God has created humans in his image. He made, this is the third foundation. God made humans to be social creatures. And then the fourth foundation is God made humans to worship him. This, the abandoning of these foundational principles, I believe, is behind the, the epidemic of violence that is raging in our country and has entered our own community here in Kentucky. The first foundation is that there is a God and he has revealed himself in the Bible. If you abandon the teaching that there is a God and he has revealed himself in the Bible, then you are left without a certain moral code. You don't have any certain standard by which to judge whether something is right or wrong. But if you believe that there is a God and he has revealed himself in the Bible, then you turn to God and you say, you teach me what is right and wrong. And this is what we will adopt as the standard of moral conduct. If there is a God, then he will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. And I think that it is abandoning this idea that has led many people to commit such heinous crimes with a high hand because they have embraced the idea that once I kill myself, then that's the end of any suffering that I will have to endure. I plan to kill myself, some of these people are saying. I plan to kill myself, but along the way, I'm going to take some other people with me. And they do not believe, they know that it's wrong. So oftentimes they'll leave behind a note, say, I'm about to do something that is really wrong. I'm about to do something that is really bad. But their fear of God is not enough that they will refrain from doing the bad thing that they contemplate and that they carry out. It is revealed in the Bible that after this life, there is another life. And you will either be rewarded by God or you will be punished by God. And the punishment of God is very horrible. The first foundation that has been abandoned is that there is a God and he has revealed himself in the Bible. Our educational system uh, has 
for years, the government educational system has tried to say, we are going to teach people everything that they need to know without reference to God. And the unspoken message of that tack is, God is not relevant to the study of history, and God is not relevant to the study of science, and God is not relevant to the study of mathematics, because we can, we can study all these things without making reference to God. And so that is a dismal experiment that has failed. And uh, the teaching that is promoted in our schools throughout the land, even in a small, remote county like Bullet County, where, where we are, the teaching is not amoral, saying we're, we're not going to say anything good or bad about God, but we're going to espouse policies and procedures that are in direct conflict to what God says in the Bible is right and wrong. There is a God, and he has revealed himself in the Bible. Second foundation, humans are created in the image of God. Now, there are two important aspects to this statement. The first is created. The second is the image of God. Humans have been created. They have not evolved from lower life forms. So the idea that we have evolved from lower life forms discredits the idea that we have been created in the image of God, and it credits the idea that we are nothing more than animals. And so with this philosophy, this theory taking hold of our country with a death grip, then it's no wonder that these young men, they're almost exclusively young men with rare exception, that these young men are are going into public places and killing people with less compunction of conscience than you could shoot into a flock of starlings. But you can eventually convince yourself that some of the starlings need to die because, after all, they're just messy birds. And if you think of human beings as nothing more than a highly evolved animal, then the essence of what gives human life value, according to the Bible, is taken away. And according to the Bible, the essence of what gives human life value is that we are made in the image of God. So we were created. Because we were created, that means that we owe obedience to our creator and sustainer. If you were not created, then you don't owe that to God. He didn't create you. If you were created, then life has purpose. I'm sure that many of these people who are committing these crimes feel like there's no use. It is just all Useless. My life is vain. But hear the teaching of the Word of God. Your life is not in vain. You were cre- what is the chief end of man? What's the primary purpose for human life? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is to be the focal point of every human life. This is the sort of thing that you were designed to do. And when you do not do that, then it's a terrible waste of a human being with enormous potential. I'm reminded of the story of a man who uh, did something highly illegal, but bear with me for the sake of the illustration. 
he found the uh, he found the nest of a bald eagle, and he took one of the eggs and he put it under a uh, a hen in his barn that was that was sitting on a clutch of eggs. And so when when the little chicks hatched out, then this little baby eagle also hatched out. And the uh, eagle grew up thinking that he was a chicken. And so one day someone comes by and he's amazed to see this big bald eagle scratching and pecking for worms in the, uh, in the barnyard with the chickens. And the farmer says, yeah, that eagle thinks he's a chicken. And the person observed, well, I don't guess there's anything wrong with that, but it's a terrible waste of an eagle. And when you and I live for some purpose other than knowing God and glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, well, from one perspective, you say, well, it's not so bad that you're spending all your time doing this or that, whatever it is that you're spending your time doing. But I'll tell you this, it's a terrible waste of a human being. It's a terrible waste of an eagle. And you were made to soar high in the atmosphere and look down upon the things of earth and see the face of God. Humans were created in the image of God. Therefore, human life is intrinsically valuable. But all throughout this world, in our own country, if you make abortion uh, not as available as it once was, then suddenly the, the whole society is screaming, oh, this is terrible. We've got to have this medicine so that we can kill more babies. Oh, this is an insult to women. We've got to have this, we've got to have this uh, facility open so that we can kill more babies. I'm just amazed that they can have this whole conversation without ever using the phrase, kill more babies. But that's what's happening. It is a disregard for human life, which has intrinsic value because we were created in the image of God. And then we wonder why these young men carry to a logical extreme the idea that human life is dispensable if it gets in the way of my happiness. We've equipped our young people with a gas can and a flamethrower, and then we wonder why we have so many fires. We've defunded the fire department and made heroes of rebels. And then we wonder why the fire department doesn't come and put out the fires. Foundation, humans are created in the image of God. And if I, I'm afraid that I'm going to forget to say this, so I'm going to say it now. If these four principles continue to be eroded and disregarded, then there will come so much bloodshed in this country that will make the mass shootings look like an airsoft war between eight-year-olds. Because when these principles are abandoned and the government gets hold of them, then millions of people die. Just, just ask the people of Russia. Just ask the people of China. Just ask the people of Italy. Just ask the people of Vietnam and Cambodia 
where the rivers ran red with blood from people who disregarded the fact that God has revealed himself and God has revealed moral conduct and God has created humans in his image when these things are abandoned, then there will be bloodshed. Third principle, God made humans to be social creatures. Society is not the enemy. There has been cultivated for a long time the idea that somehow society is the enemy. And uh, culture is the enemy, especially culture as it is under the influence of Christianity is the big enemy. And therefore we have got to get rid of the big enemy. But society is not the enemy and rebellion per se is not a virtue. There are times when rebellion is called for, but we have embraced a, a perspective that we, we admire people who, who kneel when the national anthem is being played and, oh, what bravery he has. Let's give him a, a contract with a shoe company. Or, oh, here is someone who refuses to embrace the fact that he is a man and he's pretending to be a woman. Let's give him a contract with a beer company. Oh, here is a man who refused to go and fight for his country when he was drafted during the Vietnam War. Let's just build a little shrine for him in his hometown. Oh, here is an athlete who, who, who talks bad, who lives like a tomcat, but boy, he sure can pour the baskets in the bucket. I want to grow up to be like him. And we have embraced a culture... That, that exalts and admires rebellion per se. The foundation is being destroyed. God made humans to be social creatures. And in society, authority is not the enemy. God has established authority for the good of human society. And authority begins in the home. It is no mistake that crime is most rampant in those communities where the family is most disrupted. And that's regardless of the skin color. Crime is most rampant in those communities where the family is most disrupted. And one of the reasons for the disruption of the family is that people have embraced the idea that I'm nothing more than an animal, therefore I can act like an animal and I have no responsibility for my offspring. Men say, if the baby's going to be raised, it's your responsibility, girl. Men say, if you don't want the baby, it's your responsibility to kill it, girl. And with all these alleged freedoms that have come about with the advance of feminism, the freedom to be as promiscuous as you want there has come a great price that we are paying. Who's going, to, who's going to teach these boys how to be men? It's just virtually impossible for a boy to learn how to be a man if he doesn't have any male examples in his life. But there'll be male examples who will step in. The gang will step in. Somebody's going to step in and say, son, I'll take you under my wing and I'll show you how it's done. But then when they get finished showing them how it's done, then our society is a little more dangerous than it was before. 
A rejection of authority leads to anarchy. It just seems like, it seems like all the media is jumping on the bandwagon of let's get rid of all the authority that we can. Let's just take the example of police. And we see video after video of, of police engaged in, in uh, actions and police are not perfect. We see video after video of police engaged in actions where violence occurs. And you know, I've noticed something about virtually every single one of those videos. Virtually every single one. The person who gets hurt or the person who gets shot is resisting arrest. Now, you know, I could get in all kinds of trouble for saying something like that. But it's true. Why, why, don't you, why don't you and I teach our children, look, when you get pulled over by a police officer, you do what he says. Yes, sir. No, sir. Show respect. He has been entrusted with authority by God to administer the law in this land. Show him respect. If he shows you disrespect, that doesn't give you the right to show him disrespect. Be respectful. And I just wonder how many tragic endings would be avoided if we just appreciated and submitted to our God-given authorities. God made humans to be social creatures. We are not made to live in seclusion. And living in seclusion is becoming increasingly possible in a way that it has never been before. You know, for years I was on the campus of uh, Southern Seminary and Boyce College. These are, these are men and women who are preparing for ministry. And uh, as the years went by, I was increasingly dismayed by the number of students who could not look me in the eye and talk to me like a man. I had an administrator say to me one time, Dr. Oreck, uh, girls have expressed that they're uncomfortable in your class. I said, boys are uncomfortable in my class. He said, why is that? I said, because they've never been around a man before. They're a bunch of sissies. They need to learn how to stop playing video games all day and watching anime cartoons and and take responsibility for their lives and stop living in a a virtual world that keeps them secluded from real-life people and real-life girls that they're afraid to ask out. And so they, you know, remain single till they're 35 years old, living in their mom and dad's basement. Humans were not made to live in seclusion. We were made by God to be social creatures. We're not made to live in a virtual world of Zoom calls and video games and Netflix. So the third foundation is God made humans to be social creatures. The fourth foundation is God made humans to worship him. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. I used to have a two-cycle lawnmower. Still got a weed eater that runs on two-cycle. You've got to mix oil with the gas. If you just put straight gas in there, it won't work right. It'll tear up your lawnmower. It will tear up your weed eater. 
because it was meant to run on a richer fuel. And that they tell me now for, for my chainsaw and for my weed eater, you, get, you need to get high-test gasoline to put in it. Don't get mid-grade anymore. Put in high-test. It runs so much better on high-test. If I ignore all that and just put straight gas in there, then my weed eater will, will, I don't know what will happen. It won't work. You and I were made to run on the rich fuel of fellowship with God. And the stuff of this world is not going to be able to satisfy you. You were made for something better. And so we continue to try the same old, I'm going to uh, be happy with power. Or I'm going to be happy with pleasure. Or I'm going to be happy with wealth. Or fame will make me happy. Or if I just get this position of honor, then I'll be happy. But none of that stuff will make you happy. All of those things, wealth, power, fame, pleasure, positions of honor, they all are pointers to say, you can only find rest in God. None of these things can satisfy you. You were made to worship God. You will worship someone or something. It may be yourself or it may be one of these five gifts of fortune that I just mentioned. We become like the thing or the person that we worship. And if we worship God, we will become like God. Here's my diagnosis of the foundations that are being destroyed. There is a God, and He has revealed Himself in the Bible. Number two, humans are created in the image of God. Number three, God made humans to be social creatures. Number four, God made humans to worship Him. Now let's deal with the second part of this sermon, what can the righteous do? So the question posed by the skeptic, the sneering skeptic is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, the first answer was given at the very outset of the psalm. Verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. And so my first answer, the biblical prescription is, take refuge in the Lord. It's for you, Christians, but this is something that I say to everyone, take refuge in the Lord. This neutralizes the proposal to panic that we read in verses 1b through 3. Oh my, the wicked, the wicked, what are we going to do? The wicked have bent their bow and they have fitted their arrow to the string that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. What are we going to do? Flee as a bird to your mountain. Be done with it. Take off. Protect yourself. No. Take refuge in the Lord. Do not be ashamed of the Lord. Remind yourself of the truths that follow in this psalm. Truths like this in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. What does that mean? A temple is a place that is, is designed for worship. Find out how God wants you to worship Him and worship Him. And I'll save you a little bit of search. The way that God wants you to worship Him is through Jesus Christ. Even though you and I are created in the image of God, yet that image has been greatly marred and distracted and misdirected by the corruption that sin has caused in us. So we've got, if we're going to worship the Lord in His holy temple, we have got to deal with this problem of sin that diverts and distracts and, and corrupts us. How, how are we going to take care of that? 
Well, the Lord has provided a way that your sin can be forgiven, and it is a way that is consistent with the principles of his justice. God never just pretends like somebody never sinned. God, in his holiness and his righteousness and in his justice, says, the wages of sin is death. If you're going to be forgiven of your sin, somebody's got to die. And it's got to be a perfect sacrifice, someone who's not suffering for his own sin. And that perfect someone is his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to earth, lived a perfect life. When he died, he had no sin to suffer for his own. And so he was able to die as a substitute for everyone who trusts in him, everyone who receives Jesus. Your sins are are taken off of you and put upon the cross of Jesus. But then there's something else that happens. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is put upon you. The righteousness, his human righteousness, is put upon you. It doesn't doesn't denigrate him any to give away his human righteousness. He never needed it anymore. He worked it out for the purpose of giving it to others. And if you receive Christ, then his righteousness is credited to you. And the Holy Spirit does a work that changes your thoughts about sin so that you're no longer committed to living a life of sin, but you instead are committed to living a life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You receive him as your teacher. You receive him as your king. You submit to him as your authority. You receive him as your priest. God is in his holy temple. Go and worship him there. Who knows but that in yon smoke concealed, your comrades chase even now the flyers and but for you possess the field. You say, what will my little, what will my little spark do? You just don't know. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, you need to send this multitude away. Send them away into the villages to buy something to eat. And Jesus said, you need not send them away. You feed them. I mean, if we spent six months' wages, we wouldn't buy enough for each one to have a bite. And Jesus said, what do you have? Go and see. They came back and they said, well, there's a boy here with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Well, you just give them to Jesus and see what he does with it. Say, what, what does my little testimony matter? What does my little life matter? Can I be used to turn this tide of wickedness that is sweeping over our country? You just give your life to Jesus. Just give your little five loaves and two fish to him and see what he does with them. A temple is a place designed for worship. A temple is a place designed for reconciliation. The Lord is in his temple. And then notice the next thing in verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now what What happens on a throne? Well, a king sits there. And what does a king have? A king has power. His reign is not affected by the crumbling foundations on earth. And since he's sitting on his throne, a king also has the responsibility of passing judgment. And since he is in heaven, he has an unobstructed view of all that happens. The Lord sees Now, what is he going to do? Well, look at verses 4 and following. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. You can see the poet here 
has the Lord almost squinting his eyes, almost like someone who is a little nearsighted, wants to make sure that he sees what is far away. The Lord sees what is going on, and the Lord just kind of squints his eyes to make sure that he sees it exactly right. And he tries, he tests the children of men. He tests the righteous, verse 5 says. He tests the righteous. Some of the some of the violence that is in our country is for the purpose of testing the righteous. Will we find refuge in the Lord? Will we worship him in his temple? Will we resort to him as the judge who is sitting upon his throne? Or will we say, well, none of, none of those... None of those measures could possibly be the right thing. It couldn't possibly be as simple as removing the water reducer from the shower head. We've got to dig up the yard. The Lord tests us by the trials that come into our lives. How will my people respond to this? But the Lord on his throne also hates the wicked. You see that in verse 5? This may be the first time some of you have ever encountered a scripture like this. You mean God actually hates people? Well, it says right here in the Bible that he does. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Even now, he hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The only way that God will forgive you is if you repent of your wickedness and your violence. Until that time, you don't really care if God loves you or not, do you? It's just like casting pearls before swine to tell someone who is living a deliberately sinful life, God loves you. How do you know that? How do you know that God loves this person? Instead, what we can say is God has so loved this, all peoples of this world that he has provided a way of salvation for everyone who will believe on Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. I can't tell you for certain that God loves you. If you're a Christian, I can But if you're not a Christian, I can't tell you for certain that God loves you. There are scriptures that say that God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then this also is important. He is judging and he will bring about ultimate justice. And that includes punishment for the wicked. Verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. These are all terrible, horrible, poetic descriptions of what it means to endure the wrath of God. God will punish the wicked. God God will punish the wicked in hell if they die unrepentant. Even now, he judges a society that has abandoned the foundations I want you to, in conclusion, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I think that this sermon has prepared you to to hear with fresh ears what is stated here in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Here we can see that uh, a people who abolish the foundations, who ignore the foundations suffer the consequences, and it is even now being meted out upon a society that has abandoned the foundations. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, that's, that's what I've been talking about. They're suppressing the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Ah, but you see, if you don't think that God made any of it, then the punch is is gone. But God, nevertheless, even if people don't listen, even if people don't recognize, He still proclaims who He is, that He is and who He is in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Yet when you reject God, your thinking gets messed up. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, here follows a therefore. Because this culture has done these things, here's what God is doing. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The first instance of God punishing people because of their abandoning the foundations is that he gives the culture over to widespread, rampant, heterosexual lust. The men of the culture are corrupted by pornography. The women of the culture are corrupted by false philosophies that make them think that sexual promiscuity is a sign of power and freedom. But it doesn't stop there. Next, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And in case you haven't picked up on it yet, this is talking about lesbianism. It's called dishonorable passions. It's called unnatural relations. It's called contrary to nature. Verse 27, now homosexuality. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now we look at the sexual promiscuity that is going on in our country and we say, God will punish our country for that. But you know the teaching of this passage of Scripture is, that is a punishment. The rampant heterosexual perversion is a punishment. The rampant homosexuality and lesbianism, and, and all of the LBGTQ, all of that. It, it is a punishment. It's indication that God has said, all right, you've been saying, you don't want me, you don't want me, you want something else? Have at it. And look at how this chapter concludes. Verse 28. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You mean like people going into a bank and shooting people? You mean like people going into a school and shooting little kids? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're full of envy. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Wow, how did that find its way into this list? Because disobedience to parents is a rejection of the authority that God has put in society. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Ruthless means that you don't have any ruth. You don't have any compassion. You can just shoot people and you don't care. You you can go rob a convenience store and even after the person hands you over the cash drawer, you still want to see what that 9mm will do. Ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Man, what a description of our culture right now. We know that this is wrong, but hey, they sure are brave for coming out, aren't they? Wow, you know, uh, it's not right to burn down the town, but I can see how that they've got a right to be upset. They approve of those who practice them. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, it may seem like a pretty small and trite answer. It will to many people. But be like a watchman on the wall. Whether people listen or they forbear to listen, you still have a responsibility to speak and say the truth. Zedekiah calls Jeremiah and says, what am I supposed to do? And Jeremiah says, if I tell you, you'll kill me, won't you? And besides, you will not listen to me. But he went ahead and he told the truth anyway, and that's what you and I have got to do. And somehow in his sovereignty, God will use our rearing of our children to be cognizant of the fact that they are created to worship God and enjoy Him forever, the fact that they have been embedded in society and are not supposed to spend all their life living as though they have no responsibility to authority, to teach them that their chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, that our doing that in our families, our doing that in our church is not a useless endeavor. Say not the struggle not availeth. The labor and the tears are vain. The enemy faints not nor faileth, and as things have been, so they remain. If hopes may be dupes, fears may be liars. Who knows but that in yon smoke concealed your comrades chase even now the flyers, and but for you possess the field. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Jim Bob.